would you remind us uh, today that Jesus is Lord? Uh, would you humble us again through your word and before your word as that which is ready to instruct and change us? Uh, I pray that you'd find us humble that through the, the gift and the power of your spirit that you'd move within us in such a way that we'd be changed having sit under your word this morning. God, we, uh, we need you more than we know, more than we acknowledge. And Spirit of God, I need you now. I need your help to be able to serve your people well. I uh, thank you for your word uh, that is a lamp for us, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Thank you that it's living and active. Thank you that it's breathed out by you. And it's able to make each one of us, those of us in Christ, your children, adequate and equipped for every good work. So would you do work now to encourage us as we finish the book of 1 Peter today? I pray that you would etch really deep in our hearts the picture that we are pilgrims in this world. But we are your pilgrims. Uh, we belong to you. We are here for you. And we pray that many would come to know you through us, through our words, through our testimony, for the glory of Christ and through the name of Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab your Bibles if you haven't already done that. Let's go to First Peter. Um, encourage you to, if you, if you don't have a Bible with you, maybe to grab a chair Bible in front of you. Um, it's somewhere in the 950s toward the end of your Bible is where we'll be. And we are finishing off um, this letter from Peter to the first century church. And it's been, a, it's been a joy. I feel like in some ways we should have like this, some sort of party or something when we finish a letter I'd love to hear, maybe if, if you feel led over the, <clears throat> the course of the coming weeks, I'd love to hear how God has taught you through your own personal study and just the way he sharpened you through this study. And it's interesting as we, as we look at a letter, because it's hard seeing it as part of our, our Bible. It's hard to kind of isolate this and view it the way it actually came for the first time. As a, as a letter to a particular group of churches and scattered believers everywhere in the first century. And so if you had the, the chance, most of us had, of writing a, like a greeting card or a letter to someone that you care about, it can be difficult to know how to start and how to finish. And certainly stuff in between sometimes is difficult. But how, how do you start it in a way that's meaningful? And how do you finish it in a way that really sends it off with a particular punch and with really the flavor of your affection for the person that you're writing to? And I'm grateful that in this letter, you know, at the beginning, we have what I would say um, is similar to what we have at the end. And the two, the two categories that I want to kind of put in front of you to frame in this message that really I, I think are present in the beginning and the end of the letter is be vigilant and be confident. Be vigilant and be confident. So at the beginning of the letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, there is this picture in light of our salvation that we're called to be sober-minded. And to fix our hope completely on the, the revelation of the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus when he comes at the end. But there's this sobriety, a vigilance, a watchfulness that the people of God are supposed to have in this world as pilgrims. That's kind of the title of this series. Because at the beginning of the book, it, it's written to the elect or chosen exiles who are scattered about in first century Turkey. And it's written to encourage them. And so right at the beginning of the first chapter, we see this, just the wondrous nature of our salvation as those who have been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have a, a permanent, for sure, inheritance that won't fade away. God is protecting it, 
protecting it for us at the end of time, and it'll be there for us at the end to the praise of His glorious grace. And He calls us to be vigilant in the midst of this life that offers us, and we've seen this as a really common thread. And you might have even found yourself a little bit weary at how common this theme was in the book, is that this life is going to be full of trouble. This, this last week, I'm guessing, was full of some sort of trouble, difficulty for all of us. We know that in the little and the significant ways. And part of the trouble comes for the believer when we're faithful to God simply because we seek to be different from the world, set apart for God, holy as He is holy. There's going to be a resistance that the world has to God's chosen pilgrims, His exiles, these people who journey through a world that's not their home and don't belong to the people in it. As a result, there's going to be resistance to the people of God. And so in light of that, be sober-minded, be watchful, watch for the grace of God. And today we're going to see the same language. And I love the fact that Peter ends with this just blessed assurance. So we see this, be vigilant and be confident. It's really the central message that I want to communicate this morning and that I believe is present in Peter's language as he writes to the people of God. But let's read chapter 5. We're going to read verses 8 through 14. I'll spend most of my time today in verses 8 through 11. In verse 8, it says this, it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, which most believe this is a picture Peter is giving of the church in Rome. He's writing from Rome. And the she is the church who is at Babylon, the church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So every time we close off a letter that ends with a, an encouragement to a holy kiss, I just want to like startle people. Like this is what the Connect team is going to start doing. We're going to start kissing people. It's going to be next level greeting, y'all. Let's go. No, we're not going to do that. Um, but as we, see, as we see chapter 5 come to a close, you're right before, we, if you are with us last week, there was this um, really unique expression of humility, unique in the sense that I don't know that we often think about the fact that an expression of humility is to cast your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. And I pray that you be reminded of that because the world in this little while, which is Peter's way of talking about this life, this, this life is a little while in comparison to eternity, isn't it? For a little while, you're going to experience various trials, and it's going to continue to be important for you and for me to, in humility, cast our anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for us. Because the alternative is what? 
We carry them ourselves. And so the wise man, knowing that the grace of God is there for, the, for him who humbles himself before God, says, God, to you I cast all my cares. Upon you I give you all my anxieties because you care for me. And now we move to a place of really focusing on this sober-mindedness as it relates to our enemy. In verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So be alert and be watchful. As God's people, we need to think clearly and walk carefully. As I mentioned, it's in 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, in light of your salvation, prepare your minds for action and being sober Minded, And you can probably contrast in your mind the, the difference between being sober and drunk. Maybe it's a helpful picture. When you get drunk off alcohol, you lose your sense of clarity and caution. You're overwhelmed by alcohol. You no longer see things the way that you should or the way that they are. And so as a result, you lose appropriate caution in your actions. And so the biblical form of sobriety is to, is to see clearly and to proceed with appropriate caution. That's the picture here in relation to the devil. It's like apprehend, like understand what the Word of God says about the devil and his role in this world, his attacks against you, and then proceed with caution. Confidence, but with caution. And we saw this in Ephesians chapter 6. There's been times as a, as a and I'll go back to Ephesians chapter 6 in just a, a second, Without clarity, we lose appropriate caution. So over the years, with my little ones, particularly when they're in like the one-year-old to two-year-old phase, which we move beyond. So, but in that phase, often, don't judge me for this, like, like steps are just a painful reality when you have a toddler. I mean, they could just really injure themselves, take their own life because they just step off of steps. They just tumble down. And so what I would do if our children wouldn't obey me and not come down the steps I would simulate that they're falling down the steps. Like, I just kind of roll them. They're like, what is dad doing? Like, he's rolling me upside down. He's like, almost like I'm landing on my head. I want them to feel what it's like. I want them to, to really apprehend the fact that this could hurt you if you don't listen to my voice. I want them to see clearly so that they would exercise appropriate caution. And I think this is what's happening here. The Word of God informs us that, hey, just... You need to be watchful and mindful of the fact that you have an enemy. And he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to... He's he's active. He's not passive. He's not waiting for you to come to him. He is coming to you. He is prowling around like the book of Job talks about how Satan is moving to and fro all over the earth. And he ultimately is doing so in order to deceive and distort the Word of God and the character of God in front of the people of God so that they won't obey and ultimately be misled. So be seriously watchful. I don't have time to go into this. You know, there's moments and it's, it seems like the struggle is even present when I preach because we can emphasize the devil to our detriment, but we can also minimize him to our detriment. And we, we can't do either one. We can't swing so wildly that we see the devil around every corner like we attribute some evil spirit to every action that we have. Like if I eat too much food, I've got a spirit of gluttony, therefore it needs to be cast out, you know. No, I don't. I just need to stop eating food. I just have more self-control. Like, but we, we can swing there like every single evil thing, every shade of walking in the flesh is attributed to the devil and to his demons. But we need to be neither 
obsessive nor dismissive, not infatuated but not indifferent, not afraid of him but not unaware of him. Peter's saying, be alert to your enemy. Be clear about who he is so that you can walk with caution because he aims to devour. His goal is destruction and he is endlessly deceitful. What's really interesting about the words that Peter attributes to the devil is like across the board in the Bible, the picture of a lion is attributed to God himself and to the Savior. But he gives this picture here almost like he's an imitation Savior. He's prowling around like a, a lion but he doesn't really have the power. Parading himself around as the one with the power, so in a sense he's masquerading as some cheap imitation of Jesus. But to be sure, he wants to devour. I just had a a chance recently with some of my younger girls, we watched some documentaries on baby animals born in the wild. I don't know if y'all like those kind of videos, we do, but, but we were watching little baby lions. And so I have this fresh picture of how a lion hunts. So a lion, what a lion doesn't do is just come out of the gate just roaring and making noise. Just immediately alerting the prey to its presence. A lion, I mean, if a lion does that, it's going to die in short order. But what a lion does do is it stalks silently, looking particularly for those that are injured or isolated or maybe even indifferent to its presence, like not alert to the presence of the lion. And this deceptive nature of the devil is something that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. So Paul is talking about these false apostles, and he connects it to the activity of Satan, the devil. The Bible uses those two names interchangeably as the same person, our adversary, the accuser of the brethren. But 2 Corinthians 11 says this, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You may have heard some people share this and preach this as appropriate. Like the picture of the devil with a pitchfork. That's not how he comes at you. He doesn't come out announcing his presence. But he's quiet and he's deceptive. But he's seeking to devour. So it's no wonder that, that those who work among Satan's number, his heavenly or his angelic, his dark angelic host, are those who disguise themselves as the angel of light. So we shouldn't be surprised when Satan's lies disguise, them, disguise themselves as truth. As someone once said that Satan tells lies when they're almost the truth, right? Because they sound just about right. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to share something this morning that might hurt some feelings, but I'm going to share it because I think it's a good application of this picture. Like something that Satan, I believe, has used. He's taken something good and twisted it just enough to make it mislead people. And it's actually a passage in Scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. You see it all over the place. It's most Christians' favorite verse. It's a really good verse. It's in the Bible. Right? It's like my favorite verse. Yeah, it's, it's in the Bible. Like, not to give Chris a hard time, but we say that all the time. Nobody's like, it's my favorite verse. Well, I mean, okay. 
This is a really good verse of the Bible. Let me read it for you. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's from the NIV. So for, for, for many, this verse has been taken to mean that God's plans for me are to prosper, namely health, wealth, and prosperity. There's a whole realm of false teaching devoted to that notion that God's plan for me as one of his people is for me to prosper tangibly, physically in my health. And so what happens? And God wants to bless his children. But the reality is what happens if we buy into that as the application of that passage, when inevitably we experience what First Peter tells us we're going to experience, what's going to happen? Our confidence in the character and the promises of God just whittles away. Because it came like, this, this must not, God, you must not be who you say you are. You said you want me to prosper. And if prospering to me means that I'm free from, from health issues or worry or I'm always going to have a lot in the bank, what's going to happen is our faith is going to be disrupted. And that's ultimately what Peter gets to at the end of this passage is that we have to be watchful because ultimately Satan is after disturbing our assurance and the character and the promises of God and the prosperity gospel, to be sure, is very good at doing just that. Satan has hijacked something in Scripture written to the people of God in the Old Testament and applied it in ways that God never intended. But we're called to be watchful. And some of being watchful is being prayerful. Matthew chapter 26 This is from Peter's personal experience right before Jesus was betrayed and went to the cross in Matthew 26, verses 38 through 41. I'm going to read this because, again, this is the same author writing this book, and he's now telling us to do what effectively he did not do in his moment of trial before Jesus was crucified. In Matthew chapter 26, it says this. It says, Then he, Jesus, said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and Watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So you couldn't watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't it interesting? That Peter now, years later, kind of pondering back on this experience where he, did, he couldn't stay awake to pray, that he now is commending the people of God to be watchful, to watch. And watchfulness seems to be equated in some measure to prayerfulness. Like keep alert in prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. That's what Colossians 4.2 says. Be vigilant, be alert, be watchful, be prayerful. And then this next command we see is resist him. Resist your adversary firm in your faith. So when lions hunt, as I mentioned, they seek the injured, they seek the isolated, and they seek the inattentive. Seems to be a fair description of those that they go after. And I think what's interesting and something, something I've seen in ministry is these three, three things often seem to be running mates with one another. The, the difficulty of this life, everything we've seen described in 
the book of 1 Peter that you might call injury, difficulty, trial, physical, emotional, spiritual affliction. Those issues of injury often drive us to become isolated. And from isolation comes an ultimate inattentiveness to the things of God and to the wiles of our enemy. And it's interesting how those things seem to run hand in hand. But the picture for us as believers is to, is to resist the devil firm in our faith. And, and Peter seems to address this issue of, I can just put it this way, is that a lot of times in our temptation, in our struggles, in our sin, what we can begin to believe is that we're somehow unique in these things to where no one would understand if I bring it into the light. Like my, my sin is so dark, my struggle is so unique that I can't, Bear the thought of bringing it into the light because no one will understand. That's exactly where your adversary wants you to be. He's going to take your injury, your difficulty, your trial, even your own sin, and he's going to want to isolate you. We preach this all the time. The thing that Satan will do the most, he'll work the hardest at, is to separate you from the people of God and take you out of the Word of God every single time. He'll do whatever he can to to manipulate things in that direction. And some of what we see is in our own hearts. We isolate out of injury. But Peter seems to address this, maybe a little bit indirectly, but the purpose of his statement nonetheless I think is helpful. In verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. Why? Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Doesn't it seem to fight against? Like, hey, just remember this This is common for the Christian life. Like, don't let your suffering in this world capture you with thoughts that somehow there's something strange going on in your life. It's a common struggle for believers everywhere. And it just means that you're being faithful to God. So don't be discouraged by it. Don't become isolated because of it. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And there's encouragement as well, knowing that there's fellowship in the suffering with the people of God. And resisting the devil will require us to, to be alert to our own weaknesses and susceptibility. You think about if you've read in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus' own temptation by the devil in the wilderness. Like it's notable. It shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus was hungry, Satan tempted him with food, right? So when you think about even application from this sermon, as you think about just the ways in your life, maybe areas of difficulty and injury, trial and difficulty, areas that maybe make you particularly susceptible to the lies of your enemy because he will seek to distort and deceive. And we confess in prayer and ask God to seek what lies within our hearts and we ask him to reveal to us our various weaknesses and trouble spots and help us with the same. And maybe today we need to open our eyes to certain temptations we're facing because of points of weakness or difficulty in this life. But as God's chosen people, we're to resist the devil and extinguish his lies with the truth. James 4, 6-7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In Matthew chapter 4, the same part where Satan tempts Jesus with food. You probably read it before. Every single lie and temptation that Satan gives and delivers, how does Jesus deal with it? With the word of God, with truth from Scripture. He extinguishes every flaming arrow with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Does that sound familiar from Ephesians chapter 6? The dagger, the, the death blow to spiritual warfare is the Word of 
God, in Ephesians 6, 11. I don't have a chance, I don't have time to kind of go through this, but you see the, the truth of what has happened to us in Christ, the gospel itself and our faith and righteousness given through Jesus. And so you have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith that extinguishes all the flaming arrows of the devil. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And then we pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. A church family, this is, the, this is a simultaneously a warning and an encouragement. Because Jesus wins in the end. Satan is a defeated foe. But here's, but here's the reality of Satan's schemes in this world. It seems to be depicted in the Scripture. He's got limited power and he's got limited time. So he's swinging for the fences. He's defeated. The only thing that he has left, the only strategy he can use is deception. That's all he's got. His, his strategy is to make you believe that lies are true and that truth is false. And that somehow there's life to be found in places where only death is promised. That's his strategy. That's all he's got. So be alert to it. Be awake. Think clearly about his strategies. And be cautious, but don't be fearful. Because ultimately Jesus wins in the end. But he's going to seek to undermine our assurance and doubt the promises and the character of God. But we resist confident in standing firm in the truth of God. You see this in verse 12. Look there with me. It's another place, kind of in the final greeting or final goodbye. Peter says this. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The assurance of God's promises and the reality of his grace or what carries the people of God through this little while that offers us so much trouble. Be vigilant and be confident. Be confident in the promises of God, the character of God, the sustaining grace of God. Satan will seek to undermine our assurance and our firm foundation, which is the finished work of Jesus and God's irrevocable call upon the, the people of God's lives. Chosen pilgrims elect exiles, those caused to be born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus. You are in Christ. The victory is sure. And there will be a day when you will be completely victorious and no longer under attack, free to let down your guard and enter into final rest. But that day's not today. Don't let your guard down. Be alert. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Think clearly about your own struggles and the wiles of your enemy who wants to deceive and rob and kill and destroy. And this letter of 1 Peter starts with word of assurance in chapter 1 and our wonderful salvation that's been given to us, our inheritance that's protected for us. And the letter ends with a word of assurance as well in verses 10 through 11. And please hear this, like from God to you, in the face of whatever difficulty, maybe just the need for you to be bolstered in your faith this morning. There's some sections you read and like, man, what like salve to our soul. Here it is. I'm going to read it again. Don't just be familiar with it. And church family, after we have suffered a little while, verse 10, 
the God of all grace, who is the one who's provided his grace to us, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, that God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can I share something with you? That God is going to finish what he started in you. Isn't that encouraging? That God is perfect at finishing what he starts. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God's going to complete what he started. And there's going to be a day for these broken, wandering pilgrims who have eternal hope that there's going to be a final day where everything that we know in part, the little glimmers of assurance we have in this life will be full and final and eternal. And God himself will finish what he started in you. You'll suffer for a little while during this life, but your cross of suffering will give way to a crown of glory one day. The God of all grace is the one who called you and he's the one who will complete you. This picture given, Peter uses several words here to kind of summarize really one thing that God is going to complete his work in us. But that first word, restore, is translated in other places, mend. Like when the fishermen mended their nets. And the people of God, particularly in this book, and I think throughout history, are those people at the end of this little while who will need to be mended. Because we get bruised up in this life. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And there's going to be a day where you'll meet God face to face. And with his own hands, he'll mend every thread of brokenness that you experience in this life. He himself, the God of all grace, will mend you, put you back together, and give you the wholeness that you long for today that you will never experience in this life fully but you will get one day because the God of all grace promises that there will be a day where he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you because he's the one who has all the dominion, all the resources, all the power, all the authority, and he is faithful to his word. Somebody give me an amen. Now, this is good news. This is good news for the weary soul. I have no better news to give you. If you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, he's the only one that can mend your soul. And we'll perpetually every single Sunday, because no doubt there are those who come into this room who are apart from Jesus, who've never surrendered to him. Be sure about this. There's nothing in this world. There's no other savior that can mend you. Jesus is the only one. He is the only lamb of God who takes away sin gives you the righteousness you so desperately need when you stand before God. Turn to him. Trust in him. By faith, by grace, through Christ alone. And one day the God of all grace will place you and I as the people of God firmly in his care. And we will never be moved from that place. One day your battle to stand firm will be over. And the God of all grace will make you all at once permanently strong, completely stable, 
and immovably steadfast, all by his grace and his power.